Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. On Boss Builder Podcast, what we like to do is give good information to people who have been newly promoted to supervisors. We want to speak to those who are in the role and currently struggling, and we also want to be able to reach out to those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to being the boss. Now, to do that, we have two kinds of people. We have people we consider to be boss builders, and if you go through all of our episodes, you see a lot of people like that. They're consultants, they're speakers, they're trainers, and we've even had people that are psychologists and things like that. And their job is to give you tools. We also like to, upon occasion, actually bring on a great boss. So our guest today is a combination of both of those. His name is Keppel Broth, and I met Keppel years ago while doing a project up in Canada. He is one of two people I absolutely knew I'd have to have on the show if I ever started a podcast. The other person, of course, is who you can listen to in episode 29. That's my old boss, Greg Nelson, and most certainly go back and listen to that. But I wanted Keppel on for a reason, and that reason you will discover as you listen to this. What you need to know about Keppel is that he has forgotten more about managing people than I will ever know in my entire lifetime. I knew the guy was smart, but I really figured it out once I sat here for almost an hour with him yesterday. I want you to hear that entire interview. And there's a special message at the end if you're listening to this today and you've got some sort of disappointment right now. Maybe you're a graduating senior in high school, a graduating senior in college. And Keppel's got some good best practices even for you today. So I'm going to quit talking about him. I'm going to let him do the talking. And just like in the example I give you, when the master speaks, just shut up, take notes, and listen carefully. So you know what to do, right? Let's buckle up and get ready to ride. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. Keppel Broth, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. This is a actual dream for me. I started the podcast a couple years ago, and the two guests that I most wanted to have was one who I've already had, which is my old boss from the Navy, Greg Nelson, and the second was you. And I'm going to spend the time we have together getting all the wisdom and information I can possibly get from you, but I need to set the scene up before we talk because I want people to know why I'm so excited to have you here today. So it was probably maybe 10 years ago, I can't remember exactly, I was teaching a course that was called Dependable Leaders for Pratt & Whitney Canada. It was in Longueuil at one of the sites, and I usually get a mix of different managers in the program. It's a two-day course. Actually, it was a three-day course. Three days, yes. Yeah, so three, yeah, three days, yeah. And so at the end of the day, I think it was day one or day two, I can't remember. And day you one. Done, day one. Okay, so I, I, I love what I do. It is physically exhausting to be on my feet teaching all day. So at the end of the day, Keppel comes up. He says, hey, Mac, how would you like to take a tour of the engine plant over at plant one? And I remember looking at him saying, yeah, that'd be great. And so I'm like, God, I'm so tired. I want to go back to that little, uh, it was a holiday inn right across the correct. way. That's correct. And, yeah. and go have a Sleeman's Red and just sit and decompress. And I said, yeah, that'll be fine. And I remember you taking me. So I remember him walking me into one of these doors and there was all these cardboard boxes. And so this is the part that I remember the most is that you basically took me from where the parts come in 
to where they run the final engine test step by step by step. And we walk through the plant. And the, the thing is, you knew exactly what was happening at every stage. In fact, in one place you took me and there was a couple guys working. And as soon as they saw us coming, they sort of backed off. And I remember you showing me these little tiny holes that were drilled into this piece of metal. And you explained what those little holes were for. And I remember thinking in my head, this guy could build one all by himself if he just got out of his way. And I have never forgotten that because one of the great things that great leaders do is they have expertise power. And you, Keppel, more than anybody I've ever met, has expertise power. And so I wanted to take that expertise power today. And just like those workers on the shop floor, I want to step back and let the master talk. So Keppel, that is where we started our relationship. I'd like you to fill in the gaps. Tell us how you got started Tell us about your role, and then I want to talk about the top 10 things you would recommend a manager know before they step into this role. Okay. I When I started in Pratt & Whitney in 1978, Pratt & Whitney is an aerospace company in Quebec, Long Lake, Quebec. I had no plans to become a manager because I did my aerospace at Carleton University in Ottawa, and I decided that if I were to become a good engineer, life would be happy. Now, after about 10 years, I realized that I did not know the product as I should have known it if I were to become a very good engineer. So the only way that I was able to get to learn the product was to go around from different groups, starting with experimental, uh, the industrial manufacturing, performance, secondary programs, aerodynamics, performance, as I said before, to understand the complete product. Now, I jokingly tell the people I work with, we don't make aircraft engines. We make subsystems of aircraft. Why do I tell them this? Because it's required for us as managers to understand the complete system that we are driving. And that's a very important note. I'd like you to make note of that. So I spent 20 years going around to different departments where I was able to glean information on how to do things, what had to be done, but more importantly, why it was necessary to do what we were doing. And then I became a manager. Fortunately, I was just dropped into the role, which is something that I think that, Mark, you were talking about. In today's environment, people do not get the ability to look and see what other managers do. They are just parachuted into the role, and then they have to sink or swim. And this, to me, is an unfortunate is an unfortunate occurrence. So I developed in the last 20 years, I became a manager in 1998, developed systems, processes that, if followed, would groom you to become a good manager. And I was able to go in uh, the Pratt & Whitney Management Development Program. I was able to become a senior fellow, which is the position I had just before I retired. Now, we only had four senior fellows in all of Pratt & Whitney, and the senior fellows set the, the mandates for the technical challenges that we were going to overcome for that given year. We never tackled all of them, and we defined and developed best practices so that we can capture what we were doing. So that essentially summarizes my career at Pratt & Whitney. When I left Pratt & Whitney, I was the program manager for the PW150, which powers the Q400. Uh, which is a Bombardier product. Bombardier doesn't uh, exist anymore. They changed the name now to Haviland. And the last engine I worked on was a Chinese application for the MA700, 
which is a commuter aircraft that will be built for entry into service in the 2023. So I left Pratt after 41 years, and I think my career was most of the times up, a lot of times down, and you must learn from your down times, not because you fail, you failed completely. There are lessons to be learned from failures, which we then document and make sure that other people don't fall into those holes. So that's my career at Pratt That's powerful. And I, you know, one thing I did not understand when I went there was what a fellow was. I just knew that you guys all had your photos on the wall when I, even when I went to Plant Twenty Two. You yeah. walk down the hallway and there's, and I remember seeing you every time I'd walk down. There was a lot of, I guess they just, did they leave you up there forever, Keppel? Yes, because we are still on a sort of retainer where we are pulled in for design reviews and things like this. So the fellows program is basically you are a subject matter expert that people call upon when they have to make big decisions. Is that kind of how it works? Correct. I'll just give you a sort of timeline. Before we have any critical design reviews, we have a fellows review. So we go through the material that you, as the designers, the chief uh, draftsmen, are going to be presenting, the module centers are going to be presenting, and we make sure that we can cut it down to the smallest, I guess, module or component, and then build it back up to make sure that when you go in front of the executive team, so the directors and the vice presidents, you don't get slaughtered. And we ensure that the technical, uh, I guess, technical requirements are met. So what does it take, Keppel, to become a fellow? Do you apply for it? Are you selected? How does that work? Well, you don't apply for it. We have a process in Pratt where you are identified as someone who has the technical skills in any area. You can be a fellow for aerodynamics. You can be a fellow for performance. You can be a fellow for aircraft flight. Then what happens is, as I mentioned, the amount of time that I spent going from department to department to department, I was able to put, let's call it the tools in my box, to be having a full complement of tools. So that's when they selected me in 2004 to become a senior fellow based on all of the expertise that I had gleaned over the years of practice. And the fellows set the technical requirements, also how we're going to meet those requirements and why it's necessary to meet those requirements for the performance of the product, in this case, the aircraft. Yeah, I don't know of any other company I've ever been affiliated with that has a program like this, but it just seems like one of the best things you could do is just take the the most knowledgeable minds and any idea you want to put forward, you run it by them. That just seems like a really good business practice. And I just, I think that's a great idea. It is a great idea. It is a great idea. General Electric has the same thing, by the way. Well, I'd like to think they stole it from you guys, huh? Well, I'm not too sure who stole from who, but it's actually it's a joint program. But they call it the Graybeards because <laughs> essentially you get to this position. I'm 64 years old. You get to this position when you are, you know, 20, 25 years of experience in the company. Well, I would prefer that the fellows program be in the airline industries. I mean, if you were in the vending machine industry, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But if I'm going to fly, I want to know that you've been on it. So that's good to know. That's right. Well, I want to let the audience know that when I asked Keppel to be on the program, I asked him to uh, share some of his leadership lessons. And so very much like the man you are listening to right now, he sends me like six pages of information. And so I'm going to put out the top 10 points. And if you are listening today, it would be very wise for you to get some paper and a pencil right now. And as I introduce the topic, I'm going to let him talk through each of these. 
And at the end, um, I'm going to let you know right now, you need to listen to this entire show because Keppel has a very generous offer that he's going to give to anybody on this podcast. So you would be wise to listen. So based on your 41 years, you told me that one of the items on your list, we'll just list them one through 10 here, is what to do when you are creating or inheriting a team. So talk to us about that. Yeah, this is uh, two uh, separate things. Huh? Okay. Creating a team, you will only do this maybe once or twice in your lifetime. Most managers inherit a team. Now, what I found was that when you inherit a team, you first of all have to get to know the people. You cannot really work with someone if you don't understand how they think, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what opportunities they have, and what tasks you are going to give to them. So what I did, I actually had two categories. One for inheriting teams, because most people will inherit a team. And the second for creating a team. Creating a team is much simpler because you can have all of the tasks identified and then you pick the people that meet those tasks. When we create a team, we make sure we have overlap so that if one person is away for whatever reason, they have a backup and they are aware that they are the backup. Person A is the backup to person C. They are aware of that. Now, that's the easy part. Inheriting a team from someone else, as soon as you get there, first of all, you will not be liked because you're the new boss and you're going to come with new ideas and the people will immediately dislike you. So that's the first hurdle you have to overcome. Getting to make sure that the team understands that you are there to help them. And when you give them a task, you allow them to create a plan that will meet the requirements on completing this task the timeline that you have established or that someone, your VP or your director has established for you. Once you create this plan, I then tell them, okay, you are now in charge and you get out of the way. Because I hate having managers always trying to be in the limelight, sort of leading the parade, waving the flag when they are not doing the work. People under you are the ones doing the work. Now, you must be aware of what they are doing, and you must be certain that they're going to meet what I call the sub-line deliverables. So you have major task lines and minor task lines. Each one rolls up to a deliverable that someone else is waiting for, so that you cannot get out of this role. You must manage the group, but you don't do the work, you drive the others to do the work. Okay, So that's what the difference between creating and inheriting a team is. It's more difficult to inherit a team. Yeah. And I think that's where most people are. Talk to us, Keppel, about what diversity means on that team then. No, things are changing. When I first started in the aircraft business back in 1978, essentially, we had British managers and you were told to do things with no discussion. Things are changing. As we go into today's world, now today's world in Canada, we are think. I would say the last team I had, we were 50-50 boys and girls or men and women. And in the nature of this team, we had at least six different uh, people that came from different countries. Or if they were even born in Canada, their parents came from different countries. So you have a diverse male-female cultural uh, soup that you have to manage. And it's very difficult because some people take things, I guess, differently. And the language that you use, you have to make sure that you connect with their internal brain. Now, in the brain, you have to, you have the neocortex and you have the limbic. I'm not going to go into biology, 
The neocortex is the part that handles data. However, the limbic is where you get the feeling of thrust, where you get the belief. And that's what you have to make sure that you understand with each and every diverse person that you have on your team, especially dealing with uh, women and men. And I always found it more difficult to deal with men than it is to deal with women, because I found that the men were very antagonistic. The women would listen, digest, and then come back a few minutes later with some questions, whereas the men gave you, and I'm, I'm generalizing, they gave you an off-the-cuff response. Now, you have to be able to understand that each person is different, and you make your dealings with them, your discussions with them, aligned to what their requirements are so that they take the lead. This is a difficulty that most uh, people have with inheriting groups of diverse of a diverse nature. Yeah, I, well, I think in any organization now, you're starting to see that as well. But I, when my time in Canada, I found that we saw, when I would go there, just a ton of diversity. I think a lot of people decide to make Canada their home. So you're dealing with gender, you're dealing with different cultures, and you are making the case that we need to go beyond all that and go right to the brain yes. and be able to engage on that level. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Because what you want to do is actually we should talk maybe a bit of empowerment while we're talking about the teams because culturally things uh, differ from country to country. I'll give you an example. For example, I had a guy, a project engineer from Sri Lanka, and his point was that he wanted to make his parents proud of what he was doing. The money for him wasn't important. He had to deliver something that he can take home and show to his wife and his family on what he does. Some people are different. For example, the Canadians wanted to know how much are we going to get paid and what we can make with this. So each person has a different angle that they're coming from. Now, I always stressed to the whole team that money was not important. Deliverables, that's what you were given in a specified timeline that you were also made to adhere to, is what's more important. And when I give you something, it's your responsibility to come back to me to tell me if you are moving according to plan or if you're going to be late and how much extra days you need. Because just remember, somebody else is waiting for the deliverable that you are going to give them. And if you don't meet your deliverable, they will be late on their side. And then the whole project runs off the rails. So that's how we have to let them manage themselves, letting them know that they own the project and they have to align with what I call the top level two plan that you have to maintain for your directors. This way, nobody gets... Uh, side swiped by any potential slips. If you do have a potential slip, you have to communicate it before the timeline is due. This allows you to meet the requirements and still go home to have uh, dinner with your family. Did you find in your time, Keppel, that your team responded to that? Because that, that empowerment you talked about is really ownership, right? right? They are the ones that have the responsibility. Did did most people get excited about that, or did you find that some people found that to be too much stress and responsibility? The ones that found it to be too much stress and responsibility, I gave them the option. These are the rules that we have engaged or have listed. If you want to be engaged with me, right, then you make sure you follow these rules, and I explain to them why. 
and most of them got it. We did have, I guess, in my career, I had two or three people who couldn't take it, and they left. They went and worked with other groups because they like to just be told what to do on every given day, and you need people like that, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but we also needed self-starters, people who can go see what you're driving to, why you're driving to it, and then they actually started to drive me, which was the benefit, because if they could complete something quicker, right, they would come back and say, okay, I'm done, now what do I do next? Now, I also did something that was quite picky in that I would only, we worked an average of 40 to 45 hours per week. I would give them five hours of what I called free time, free time to develop whatever they wanted to do, as long as we related to the aircraft industry. And we will allow them to go travel to different areas. We, they can do this five hours per week. And believe you me, that was a kicker because they used to do, uh, you know, they, they used to do all kinds of things that were really imaginative outside of their core hours. Did these ideas, Keppel, did these come to you somehow? Did you learn them? Because everything that you are saying so far, we're only into like point three or four here, yeah, I know. Is, is stuff that, you know, you couldn't teach a person in a thousand years. Did you learn this from somebody that you work for or was this through trial and error of watching? I mean, obviously you are a very deep thinker. But where did this come from, this idea, just this empowerment piece? I, I actually learned this when I first joined Pratt Whitney. We had a process where, as a new engineer, they would tag you on to one of the more experienced engineers. And I, my first guy, who I, uh, it happened to be a guy, his name was Tadusz Krapik. He was Polish, and you could hardly understand what he was saying. So you had to pay attention to what he was saying. But he had a wealth of information. He was just finishing his PhD at 67 years old. He was working wow. at Pratt & Whitney, finishing his PhD in aerodynamics. And he actually took me aside and says, if you want to be successful, these are the things you have to do. And every day for the first four or five months, I think I spent with him. No, even longer, even longer, because then I sort of bridged on my own. And he would come once in the morning, once in the afternoon to see how I was doing. So I think it's up to seven months. We would talk about various things. We had lunch together every day. We got to the point where he invited me to his home. I met his wife. This was the sort of integrated approach we had to teaching and learning. So I was taught this by one of the older generation people. I guess I can call him older because I was only 20 at the time and he was 67. Mm -hmm. But you were taught these tricks and Believe you me, they work. Yeah. Well, I mean, these every example you've given me is just fascinating. Now, the fact that you are a, a deep thinker, and I want to just, this kind of follows the points that you've given me, but we are in a time right now, we'll, we'll time and date stamp this podcast. It's happening April the 27th of 2020. So now we are faced with ambiguity, COVID-19. I, I figure it's probably impacted all of you up in Canada, uh, certainly the way it has down here. So in just the idea of production and efficiency, what would you see as some strategies for a manager who's got to wrestle with that now? Well, let's just go back in time. Let's go back to 2019. In 2019, our operations team was pushing globalization on a day-by-day -day delivery or two days, depending on flights and stuff like that, coming from Poland, coming from Romania, coming from India. And they were pushing this as the, quote-unquote, cheap, low-cost source, right? Or cheap is not the right word. A cost-competitive, low-cost source. I just want to make sure that I specify this. 
you're talking air, I don't want cheap. Yeah. Okay, Correct. good. Air, you want a cost competitive. Now, there you go. The issue, when we had, and in Canada, our state of emergency was issued the first week of March, that all changed. Air travel was ser- seriously curtailed. So we found we had no parts to continue building engines at the rate at which we were building them. So it forces you to think about this concept of globalization. After having said that, last year, I was looking at General Motors. I have to deviate a little bit from the aerospace industry for General Motors because they had an assembly plant in Oshawa. Oshawa is one of the small towns in Ontario, a province in Canada, and they were targeting to be closed this June of 2020. Now, I have some friends who work there, and they were telling me, you know, we have all of these machines, the... uh, the tooling manufacturers that supply to General Motors, the people at General Motors that do some repair, they have all of these machines and they were thinking of getting rid of them. And when I looked at the machines, they were all five-axis numerically controlled Mitsuiseikis and things like this. It's exactly the same machines that we used. So I thought, okay, if you are getting rid of it, you have all of this extra machine hour capacity that's available You have programmers that are sitting there, going to be laid off in a few months. Why can't we use them to make experimental parts for Pragmatic Canada? Everyone said, aha, but they are not aircraft qualified. They are not NADGAP, North American Defense Contractor qualified. Then I went one step further. I said, what do we have to do to get them qualified? How can we get money from the government to get them qualified? So I went and I contacted the Ministry of Ontario, the Labour ministry, and I found out they have money for training. And I found out that these people, tool manufacturers, were very happy to get additional work to keep their people employed. So I put everything together, and we now have a process where we have the Great Lakes Manufacturing Area. So it's a series of cells essentially bordering the U.S., Windsor, uh, London, Ontario, Ottawa, even Montreal, Quebec, where they can make aircraft parts because we got them NADCAP approved, delivered to Pratt & Whitney development, and now they're even thinking of going to production. This allows us to think in what I call a global level, but more the local level. We are engaging people to embed them in these plants, whether it be in Ottawa, whether it be in London, whether it be in Windsor, so they can give us a daily report of what is required, stay within the confines of Canada, have parts made using energy sources, in Quebec, for example, all of our electricity, 96% of our electricity is produced by hydropower, which is very clean, not coal burning as in Poland. When you look at all of this, it actually makes sense to change the way that we are thinking. Keep parts in Romania, keep parts in India, or cost, cost competitive parts in these countries with the additional lead time for travel is possibly not the way to go. In fact, I know it's not the way to go. I'm, I'm going to send. I'm going to write a paper on this and send it into the Pratt and Whitney management so that they can actually start thinking about this new method of producing parts. Essentially, I'm copying Toyota. If you were to read the Toyota way, Toyota sources all of its parts within one hour driving of the assembly area. So this is something that I'm trying to figure out. How can we apply this to the aerospace industry? Well, if you can't sell it up there, I'm going to try to get you to sell it down here because I think we're going to struggle with that as well. Well, it, it actually it aligns with your governments, you know, 
make the U.S. great again? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, for, forget the political aspirations of uh, some people, but think about the requirements. You have the programmers. You have the machining capability. Why not use it to make the parts for you? Now, I know there will be reciprocal agreements where you're making parts for delivery to Indonesia, and they will want some source, some outsourcing at their places, a sort of uh, give and give. You'll have to take that into account. But the general theorem should be able to hold water, whether you're making automotive parts or whether you're making aerospace parts. It requires a lot of thought, Mac. There's a lot of thought going into the qualification of these sources and the quality that you get out at the end of the day. It's not an easy, uh, you know, slam dunk. No, it's not. But I think the one thing that works in its favor, uh, just in Canada and down here too, is that when you have no other option, you have to do with what you have. And I Correct. think, frankly, that's where we're at. We we are faced with something I've never seen in my lifetime of 56 years. And there are nobody that has any clear answers. There's good questions to ask. But you I think have a lot of questions. No answers, yeah. but a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the questions are important. And I think then the good news is, is that if we have no other alternative, then any option will be considered. Now, again, you if we tried to do this two years ago, people would have, like, we don't need to do it. What's the reason? But anymore, um, I think it's going to be clear. So uh, you are the man for the times, Keppel. This is good. I'm not too sure about that. You may not have a choice. You, you keep putting yourself out there. Someone's going to come and bring you and uh, take you to uh, you know Parliament and make you talk to those people, huh? Well, I actually did. I went up to meet the Minister of Labor. And Mr. Hoskin and I, we had quite a good discussion. And these guys are not stupid. These are not stupid guys. They have quite a lot of background, which surprised me because I normally thought, you know, politicians are not uh, brilliant, but they are. They are not stupid. And uh, we actually got the training for the plant in Oshawa. And I was supposed to go to meet a team in Windsor where this company, Technicut, was able to keep 90 jobs, 9-0 jobs, to manufacture parts for Pratt & Whitney. You know? So this is a sort of scale we're talking about. It's not one or two jobs. It's quite a lot. That is, yeah, especially in this economy. Wow. Well, let's let's go back to our management lessons now. Oh, okay. Because, Sorry. Because, <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Because I think what I take from that too is that if you're going to be in this role, you better be a deep thinker. And you, you need to think beyond just the day-to-day task list, but be able to project forward. And Correct. So I think that's obviously that's something that you've owned from a very young period of your development. But let's talk, Keppel, about ethics and and the team's social responsibility. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the social responsibility first, because I think there's a lot of things that are changing, especially with this. Like, if you go to the shops here now, right? People are always asking, "Why are we having so much packaging on things? Why are we throwing this away? Why are we wasting this?" The same questions will be asked of you by your management. Why do we buy, and I'm just going to give you an example, the power turbine shaft for one of the PW800s that we make is a uh, 14,000-pound thrust engine. Starts off life as a forging just under 1,000 pounds, right? 470 kilograms. The shaft, as delivered to the assembly, it's weighing 162 pounds, just under 80 kilograms. Now, Let's look at the cost of transporting that, machining it, all of the waste that you generate. Is this socially responsible or or actually from an environmental point of view, is it the responsible thing to do? And we have to start looking at this. There is a lot of waste that we have in our manufacturing processes. There are a lot of things that you can challenge. Now, I'm not saying 
to lose the intent of having a forging, or we can actually have rolled forgings that go into shaped dies so that you can reduce the input material. Now, something we actually started tracking at the design level is what we call the buy-to-fly ratio. From an environmental point of view, you buy one kilogram and you deliver a part of half a kilogram. We have a two-to-one buy-to-fly ratio. We are targeting to have a buy-to-fly ratio of 1.1. After that, I just mentioned, we had a buy-to-fly ratio of 10. So it means 90% of your input got into wasting. can't have that. You you can't have a company that continues like that. Now, moving on to ethics. You deal with a lot of companies around the world that have different levels, different, I guess, let's call it point of interference with your rules. I'll give you an example. When we invite the FAA to Pratt & Canada, you are not allowed to buy them dinner. You're not allowed to buy them anything because they are viewed as government employees. And the FAA is a government structure. So what you have to do is you have to put out, if you have coffee, if you have muffins and things like this, you have to put out a small cash man so that the the team can pay. If they take coffee, they pay some money. And then that's fine. When the Chinese come, they expect you to take them on a pre-meeting dinner paid for by your company. It shows a matter of goodwill and good faith. So here you have, you know, dealing with the FAA, dealing with the Chinese, you have two different methods. Now, we have had to create a series of laws and ethics at the UTC level or the Raytheon Technologies level. I got to keep uh, that in mind. <laughs> we have to have, we had created a lot of these rules for engagement. Now, my boss always told me something. If you were to have a story written about something that you did in the New York Times and you read it, how would you feel? Will you hold your head up high or would you be embarrassed? Don't hold your head up high. It means that ethically you are probably okay. We've had to take courses every two or three months, I guess once per quarter, where we had refreshers on different ethical uh, points because it's very interesting. We are dealing a lot with the military, and they they require that the ethics be of the highest standards. You cannot bribe military officials in the U.S. or Canada. You cannot do any of these things. And we maintain that same one style approach to every country in the world that we're dealing that we are dealing with. And to me, it's the only way to go. Now, most people, we have a rule: if it costs less than five dollars, we we don't mind. So if you were to give me a gift and it's less than five dollars, it's okay. When I went to say goodbye to my friends in China, because I had a team on site, they gave me a model uh, of the aircraft that we were building, and it cost $170. So I declared it, I took it, and as soon as I got back to Canada, I declared it to my ethics officer, and I gave it to him. And I says, I got it as a gift. I'd really like to keep it, but my conscience tells me it's more than $5, and I can't keep it. So they kept it there, and then when I left the company, they gave it to me as a gift from Pratt & Whitney. So that to me was okay. Keeping it when I just got it was not okay. So these are the ethical choices that you make when you're working as a manager because there'll be a lot of times that you'll be exposed to having people buy things for you. For example, when I went to Italy for the gearbox of the 150, the Italian team had tickets to see Juventus play. So I'm, I'm a very... Uh, strong football fan or soccer fan. But I couldn't take it because there were 300 euros, these tickets. I couldn't take it. So I had to gracefully decline. 
and I bought tickets on my own MasterCard, and then I was able to go with them with a clean conscience. The reason you have to be ethically, I guess, alert is you do not want yourself to be in a position where someone has something on you that they can use it to undermine your authority or your position. And that's the important thing. I don't know if people really think about that. I know when I was in the military, we were told you can't accept any gift under $25. I think that was the, the amount. Yeah. But, you know, there has been, and I don't know if you've read it, there's been a real big scandal in the Navy, which, of course, I always pay attention to. It's where I served. Yeah. Uh, they call it the Fat Leonard Scandal, um, where there was a great deal of this stuff going on. And, you know, what it does is not only taints your own organization, but I think it lets everybody else from other countries, other industries, see you in a place where they disrespect you. So I, I think that's a very, very important point. And what I love is that even something that you probably would have loved to have had, that model airplane, yeah. you, you told your ethics people that you really would like to have it, but that you're going to give it up. And the beauty is, is that it came back to you. It almost sounds like how you launder money, right? We give it <laughs> to right. and they gift it to us, but, but you did the right thing. And if you are listening to this today, you will be facing ethical dilemmas probably more frequently than you think. And I, I love the analogy of if I read about it in the paper. How would I feel about it? So, so thank you. Let's let, let's change the topic and talk about two important words: quality and productivity. Tell us about those. Okay, quality. It's uh, well, actually, we should maybe define them for the people that don't understand it. Quality: the totality of features. When you make something, it has to meet the requirements that has been put under specification. Okay. Now, productivity is an economic measure of what you have to do to be able to meet the output of this process to meet the requirements that you have signed up to. Now, quality and productivity, they, are, they, they affect the businesses in, 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 very way, in very many ways. Now, we can actually compete on an international level, not level, international playing field. And we have been able to look at companies that, quote unquote, did not meet our requirements but through training, through, I guess, uh, job shadowing with some of our people from Pratt & Whitney with them, we were able to bring these people up. Now, why is it important to you? Because you can actually open uh, doors by having a product that meets the requirements, passes the requirements. If you want to build a aircraft engine or uh, an aircraft uh, company, right, you must meet the requirements specified by the Federal Aviation Authority, and in our case, the Transport Canada uh, personnel. Now, let's talk about something that I would like to broach on, which is the build-test ratio. When you build an aircraft engine, each one is tested 100%. No holds on. You must have 100%. Of all the metrics that we have put in is something that we call the build-to-test ratio. So you build an engine, you put it through the test cell, it passes all the requirements stipulated by Transport Canada and your performance team. If it goes through, you get a one. You built it once, you tested it, and shipped it in the box, collect the tech, and off you go. If you were to have to strip this engine for whatever reason, change some components, and retest it again, you now have to test it two times to get it through the door. So your build-to-test ratio suddenly has gone to two. Now, what we found was 
we looked at the loss of time, loss of capacity for test cells, and also the costs associated with this build-to-test ratio. On the PW150, I happened to be, uh, I guess, the stellar benchmark where my build-to-test ratio for the last 100 engines, now I'm talking about October of 2018 to October of 2019 when I left Pratt & Whitney, was one. So from the last 100 engines that we built October to October, we had a build-to-test ratio of one. This was unheard of. And the people thought that this was the best thing that we can have, and they started to read it across the other engine models. Now, this does not happen overnight. You can't have an engine that meets all the requirements from day one. So you have to develop it. You have to make sure you have the performance team looking at each variation, creating the Ishikawa or fishbone diagrams to show what the drivers are for these deviations and then fixing them one by one. It took us a few years to get the build-to-test ratio down to one. Once you get it, you then start making money head over fist because you build it, you test it, you put it in the box. You also have surety of your deliveries in that if you have to retest an engine, you're going to miss your target date for the first delivery that was promised to the Bombardier or the Havilland. These are all of the things that tie into build-to-test ratio where you can get your quality and your productivity tied into one metric, build-to-test ratio. That's what I wanted to share with you today. That sounds like... It doesn't happen by accident. What is what is the average? I mean, now you set a standard for a, a one. Has it an average been higher than that before? Oh, yes, yes, yes. The universally accepted number for Pragmatic Canada is 1.1, and we have some engines that are at 1.2. It means 1.1 every 10th engine gets something. Some, uh, you know, they have to strip it for some reason. When we first started the 100s, we had a build-to-test ratio of three, and that's when we developed this. So this was not something that I thought about. I was beaten into submission by uh, getting it right. But then you fix it, and people realize, oh, look what's happening over there. And uh, this is something that actually requires a lot of money. But once you get it, there's a lot of benefit to spending this money up front. Well, I can see. Well, I guess that requires whoever's going to be in this role, they have to have a lot of technical knowledge to be able to to run something like that. That makes me feel better as somebody, at least who used to fly on planes, mm-hmm. to know that somebody's tested it. <laughs> oh, by the way, we don't shoot birds at every engine. We only shoot birds at some engines. The engines that we towed back in uh, 2006, that was one that was going to have a bird shot at it. <laughs> yeah, that's the one piece of the story I didn't share where you <laughs> told, told me about that because I always wondered, and sometimes when you ask, you get the answer, so... Uh, yeah, so you can be assured that when you're flying, we can at least vouch for the engine, right? Right. Good. Well, let's let's go back to current reality. So okay. we we know now the office environment has changed. Uh, I have not flown in uh, about two months, I guess now, and I know a lot of people are now working virtually. So with that changing, what does that mean for deliverables? What does that look like? Okay, now working virtually means you are not in the office. You are online somewhere like we are right now. Right. One in Ontario, one in Actually, I don't even know where you are. But I'm in Tennessee, down in oh, the you're US. Oh, in Tennessee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be happening more and more. With the each person on my team had a laptop, and we had them set up with uh, essentially what we call Link, which allows us to have uh, teleconversations uh, with them. 
uh, on camera or off camera, depending on where you are. If you're in a shop, you'll probably just be on a phone. It means that you do not have an office setting where everyone is sitting and you can just get out of your office or get up from your cubicle and look to see if the person is there. Now, I personally think that once you have a level two plan that is dictated to you by your VPs, once you have that plan and you break it out into the level three into which each one of your team, your sub-members are going to deliver, I don't need to see them sitting at their desk working. In fact, what I found was that most people work differently. I like to be sometimes sitting by myself in my basement, sketching on the walls without anybody harassing me. Most people are like this. Some people like to listen to music, which, by the way, I never understood. The seat of my, my people listening to music and working, it drives me crazy because I can't listen and work at the same time, I guess because I'm old. But it's okay. Okay. You have different ways of working. Some people prefer to work after 7 p.m. at night because their brain is more functional. I prefer to work at 4.45 in the morning. So you have this divergence of people. Being in the office, not being in the office, right? So FaceTime, which is what we were accustomed to 40 years ago, is becoming less and less important. Deliverables, though, are becoming more and more important. So we actually developed a process where people can work at home. They must advise us which days of the week you're going to be working at home. Send me a little note so I'll know where you are. And you work at home as long as you met the deliverable for that day. The tasks that you were to deliver on that day must be met. And then that's fine by me. Now, this is something that some managers have a very difficult time with. People not being in the office, they can't see them, they can't reach over and touch them, right? Touch them, meaning to, to ask them to do something. Mm -hmm. It also puts you in a very difficult position in that you must understand at any given moment where each person is in what their tasks lists are and when they're going to deliver it because you never know when your VP is going to come and tap you on the shoulder and says, where is this project? And you cannot go into a dumbfounded state where you can't answer. You must be able to tell them exactly person A is doing this. They deliver it on this time. So it requires you to have a very solid understanding of everything that's happening in your group, whether the people are at their desks, working at home, working at night, you know, in a different country. Because, for example, my team is China. Right now, they're sleeping. They get up at 5.30 in the morning, my time. So we were able to have these phased days where some days I would work in the morning, some days I'd work at night. You know, still available by phone, but it, it really expands your day. So my day went from 4.45 in the morning till 10 p.m. at night with breaks in between that you can go off and do something that was... So it's a really odd arrangement where your day is no longer nine to five. And this is a very difficult reality that we have in today's environment. Most people are not prepared for this. Do you see this, though, Keppel, as the way of the future? Or do you think maybe when COVID-19 has been beaten and we have a vaccine that we'll go back to what we used to do? It's the way of the future. Because what you have to do is you must be able to have a point of contact living in China, let's just take in Japan, Australia, in the US, in Mexico. I'll give you an example. When I was driving into work in the morning, I'd be talking to my boys from China, and girls, because I have one girl in China. It will be evening time, their time. Then when I was coming home from Pratt and Whitney, 
I'd be talking to my manufacturers in Mexico because they are three hours behind us. So you can see how this is, you can use your day. Now, I had no clue what my phone bill was because when I'm driving, I was roaming. <laughs> and But I didn't care. And then when I got home, I would take the first 15, 20 minutes to make notes of what we had discussed and then send it off to the people. Now, I just want to make sure that I was socially, socially responsible. All of this was hands-free. So all of my cars are equipped with a hands-free that as soon as I get in, I engage the, uh, the telephone with my, uh, with my hands-free systems. So there's no driving while uh, dialing. You dial before you start. Okay. Well, let's talk about your development program. So you, you had four levels of development. Tell us about those. Well, I call it <laughs> one, two, three, four, because I'm a simple-minded person. I would, I would, I would disagree with that, Keppel. Well, you are okay, well, not a simple-minded person. Now, my, let me explain what this means. Let me explain what this means because it's very important. They are essentially ratings that we give to people. Uh, let's start off with level four because I always go in reverse. Right, level four is someone who can teach, develop programs so they can calculate loads and things like this on the aircraft engines. Teach, show people how to do it. They know and understand all of the nitty-gritty details of what's going on. Okay, This is someone who can be, like myself, a fellow. You can go and engage with other people outside of your area and show them what you need, why you need it to deliver what you need to deliver. Level three is one step below that. They are integral in the group, in your group, and they can show the younger people what they need to do and deliver outside of your group. Level two is someone who is just started in the group, is very familiar with the tools, and they can deliver what is required to meet your requirements, your, your deliverables to people outside. Level one is someone who has just joined, still wet behind the ears, and learning as they go what they have to deliver, how they run programs, how they interpret the data. What I tried to do on my team was to create a mix of level one, two, three, and four for every sub-detail, whether it be aerodynamics, performance, you know, oil systems, so that when you look at the group, you see a fully functional group on the surface. We created a matrix so that each and every person had essentially, let's just say the matrix had 50 lines, and I think it did have 50 lines, showing what your ranking is in each one of these subtasks and what was required to get you to the next level. So, for example, if you were at a level two and you wanted to become a level three, you had to show a level four, that's the senior people in the group, that you were capable of making this step. And then they would allow you to move one step higher. This allowed us to make sure that each and every person in the group was mapped in terms of their technical skills. And then when you had all of these level fours, their names would go into an even higher level matrix where they can be selected to move on to become other group leaders, other managers, other areas or subject matter experts around the company. So this was how we created the team. I call it level one, two, three, four. Some people have different names for it, but it allowed us to develop people to be technically competent. Now, the reason that you needed to be technically competent is, and I'd like to go forward, is that when you get called into the VP's office, 
you are only allowed to go in by yourself. So it means that you have no clue what he's going to be asking you about, and you have to go in there and be able to defend the integrity of your whole group, and even some groups that feed into you. So this level one, two, three, four allowed us to develop people very quickly and get them to the point where, if I were away, they could call my group leaders, and they'll get exactly the same answer as if they, they would be talking to me. And this was the process that we developed. This would mean that your team was probably changing members more frequently, right? Yes, it was. It means that when you got up to the level three and level four in particular, they would be pinched and move on. Now, to the person looking at this on the surface, you may think that this is a very uh, difficult thing. But what it has forced us to do, or what it, it forced us to do, was to train the people. But once they start to become trained, other people from outside of your group look to see what's going on. And they said, hey, wait a minute, I want to be like that level four. And then you have these people who fight to come onto your team. So even though we had this rotation, you never were really short for anyone. You always had people coming in under you to be trained. And then those level fours that you let go would remember the rules that you taught them, the rules of engagement. So they'll be training other people as they go. So the whole group, if you want to call it herd migration, moved up one or two levels. Now, that's a powerful statement. You know, it's something that I think a lot of managers don't understand that by developing their people and allowing them to grow, they may be experiencing turnover. But think about the reputation they would have if people were fighting to get on their team. And these would not be the lowest performers because they know they'd have to work on your team. So you're going to get right. the best of the best, right? Essentially, you get the creme of the, la creme de la creme in France, we say it. In <laughs> but you, you get the best people. And then when they go out, now remember, when you go out to XAC, essentially, we don't send 16 people. We send one person, a level four, myself, and the marketing guy who has to make sure that you don't give away anything. So essentially, you are two. And when you meet the Chinese, believe you me, we had group meetings where the two of us were confronted by 35 people in the same room, right? And they would ask a question, and then they'd spend five minutes discussing it amongst themselves, and then ask you one question. So you had to know everything about everything, which was uh, a very, uh, uh, believe you me, when you spend one day, working with the Chinese. You were tired when you got <laughs> Well, that's when I'm going to take you for a tour of a farm. How's that? That'll be payback for you. Huh? Oh, okay. I, I, I will probably be uh, very interested in it. Yes. Well, Keppel, I only have one more question for you. Yes, and this sir. is a question I've been asking a lot of our guests recently. And just in light of what's happening now, at least here in the US, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but if you are a senior in high school, ready to graduate, you have really, this year has been a disappointment. You've had no prom. You won't have a walk through graduation. Also, if you're a senior in college, not only are you missing out on a walk through graduation, but your shot of finding a job in, in a lot of disciplines may not happen because we're in a very, very different time frame. So from your wisdom and the years you've spent, especially developing people, what word of advice would you give to the graduating senior from high school or college as they begin to navigate this new world full of ambiguity? Well, actually, I have uh, three words of advice. Okay. No matter what you're doing, you must understand in reverse order what you're doing, right, how to do it, and most importantly, why you're doing it. 
when I was going through university, I was actually cleaning out a store in Kmart. They don't exist anymore. You probably don't know it. But I always used to go back to, this is what I need to do. This is how I'm going to do it. Run the little machine that sort of uh, mopped and vacuumed at the same time. And I was doing it to get my university aerodynamics, aer aer my aerospace engineering on the wraps. Even if you were to be making hamburgers or anything like this, you must understand why you are doing what you're doing. Now, if you tell me you're doing it to make money, that's only the result. Right? That does not answer the question. If you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, how to do what you're doing, right? then you have missed the point. So my advice to any young person graduating, no matter which field you pick, you must understand why you are choosing this field and what does it bring to you. I teach a course at Pratt & Whitney for uh, young uh, in interns, right? We call it the uh, freshman's course. Freshman's course is a term that is a person who just arrived, okay? And I show them why we are the leaders in what we do. The reason that we are the leaders is that we have an engine that is 100%, I think actually it's 99.94% or percent dispatchable, which to an aircraft maker is an incredible thing because you can have essentially flight being uh, dispatched on target, 99 point uh, whatever the number is. I've, I've, I've forgotten the number altogether, but higher than 99.7% of the time. We are there to make sure that we understand why this is important and then how we maintain the quality and productivity of this engine for what we are doing for the aircraft as a system. And this is the lesson that I learned. And you can apply this for your aircraft. You can apply this to anything you're, that you're doing. You are a chef. You want to make sure that the people who are there, they understand that you are preparing this. Why? To that to get their experience to be the best that it can be from your skills. This is all you need to be focused on. Now, I wanted to challenge you on what you said there, that we are having problems in terms of engagement. Well, I looked at the demographics of, and I always, I'm only speaking about Pratt & Whitney. Mm -hmm. But Pratt & Whitney, if you were to look at the age group to the people that are going through at this moment, 2020, April the 27th, in the next three years, we're going to be losing about 30% of the workforce because they'll be crossing 65, which means they'll be allowed to retire. At some point, you have to backfill and train those people. Now, something that we didn't discuss, and I'd like to just take a few seconds to sure. tell you. When I decided to leave, I gave my boss my notice, my director, I gave him my notice in May of 2018, I told him that I'll be leaving in October the 1st, 2019. So that gave him 18 months. I would like him, I told him, I would like you to engage someone who I can train to replace me. And he thought, well, that's very difficult. I'll have to get budget for that. I said, no, you don't have to get the budget for that. Think of what you will gain. And I showed him all the requirements of my job and how people are ill-briefed to perform it. And he actually got this approved by HR and uh, the VP. So I started a trend. He was engaged. It's a lady. She was engaged in September of 2018. And then when I left on October the 1st, 2019, she was running the group, no interruptions from me at all. So this 
wave that's coming for retirement will need replenishment, both an operations term. The young people graduating from universities now or entering high school, uh, universities from high school, have to look 10 to 15 years down the road to see the skills that they are developing and how they're going to meet these skills and why do they want to meet these skills. So that's the way that they should look at it. Well, I think they should have you give the commencement address <laughs> virtually for every student this year. And certainly food for thought, even as I start thinking about as I'm heading down the downside of this career, you have so much to offer, Keppel. And obviously you have not slowed down, at least from what I can see. But uh, you you did tell me something when we first started, because I told you, and this is how we run the podcast. And I say, usually my guests have a book or something. And, and you said, well, wait a minute. And I says, well, what? And you said, I want to let people know that they can email me and they can ask questions. And uh, that is probably better than any book or product or service anybody has ever pitched on my podcast. So I'm going to, for those of you who have been listening and you say, boy, if I could just have some time with Keppel, well, the good news is you can. So Keppel, how can my audience reach you by email and just engage with you and ask you questions? Well, do you have a way of communicating with them? Uh, well, they're going to be listening to this right now, and I can post it right there in the show notes. So, yeah. Okay. So, can you just put my email, keppel.brath at gmail.com, and I have no qualms about uh, issue. You know, I only work one hour per day on my email. It's a limit I've put uh, on myself because you have to do many tasks in a day. I, I don't sit and play with the computer all day long, and uh, I am willing to guide them on any within my limited experience on any things that they may have, they may want to do. And uh, it's I, I charge no money for this because I have a lot of people that I still mentor from Pratt & Whitney, from uh, Raytheon Technologies in the U.S., in Connecticut. I still mentor them. They phone me when they want to get some words of advice. And uh, I will not uh, give you things that you should buy stocks and things like this. That's not my nature. We discuss in generalities how to improve yourselves so that you can become managers of the future. And the manager's role is changing, changing. Some things for the better, some things for the worse, some things more difficult, some things easier. But I just wanted to come back to one thing. You are the only one that goes into the CEO's office to explain your program. And when you get that thought through your head, what is required, then it changes the way you answer things and the way that you respond to your higher-ups. No? And it's not a threat. It's just to make sure that when you say something, you think about it before you say it, and you are willing to stand up and defend it. You cannot just say something and then walk away. It does not work like that. Life doesn't work like that. Not in the business. Not in the business. And I don't think it works that way in any business. I think that's why it works. <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. All right. So that's... Uh, I don't know, Mark, if you have any other questions. I'm, I'm pretty uh, open to anything. It's, uh, you, you've given us a lot. I've just realized we've been talking over an hour, and it seems like I've been sitting here for five minutes. And this has been just such a gift for not only my listeners, but for me. And you know, one thing I've always thought about when I think back just on that day, that afternoon we spent at the engine plant, is that you've probably forgotten more about leadership and management than I will ever know. And, you know, for that reason, you're kind of like a national treasure. And thank you so much for giving up an hour to be on my show today. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I really enjoyed this, man. I really enjoyed this. 
Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. (laughs) 